Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Er Garcia. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode we continue our exploration of the book The Dream Betrayed, Religious Challenge of the Working Class by the American Lutheran scholar Karen L. Bloomquist, published by Fortress Press in 1990. So far we have explored Bloomquist's analysis of the situation of the working class and how the church often exacerbates its condition of servitude and injustice by articulating a mythology of work that concords with the prevailing culture's construction of work and its meaning in human life. Moreover, by failing to take seriously the yearning of the working class for liberation, the church not only enacts its own peculiar forms of classism, it also impoverishes its own capacity to activate the transformative power of the gospel. Bloomquist argues that the challenge for the church is to understand how it can declare the gospel in a way that embeds itself in the realities faced by the working class, all the while offering both a critique of that reality and a vision of a viable, liberating alternative. And with that we come to episode 15, The Dream Betrayed Part 3, Theological Perspectives for Addressing Class Realities Bloomquist argues that the dilemma of the working class in the industrialised West is reflective of a wider social and economic context that has become idolatrous. An idolatry whose power must be recognised as human in origin, a product of historical development and not inevitable necessity, and which is eminently changeable and not carved in stone. Recognition of this reality, however, is insufficient. More than mere recognition, working-class people must be enabled to express their yearnings and claim a genuine space within society that enables that yearning to be satisfied. Such an enabling concords with the biblical understanding of a God to whom human needs are important, a God who creating humankind in the divine image and likeness, wills our liberation from the cultural, political and economic idols in whose likeness human life has been falsely recreated. From the perspective of Christian faith, critique of the idol by which the working class is enslaved begins with the reality that God's claim on human life is greater and more pervasive than the claims of any social, economic, political entity or system of organisation. 
Moreover, this claim is not in the nature of possession or subjugation. Rather, it stems from the gospel proclamation that God's will for us is to be more fully human. That is to say, to not merely be passive recipients and puppets for ideology, but to be active subjects in history, making real in partnership with God the liberation that God intends for us. The question then becomes, how might a theological project that seeks to challenge the power of the idol and transform its subjugation into liberation enable the working class to transition from merely passive objects of ideology to active subjects shaping their own historical context. Bloomquist acknowledges that challenging the idol, while necessary, is also complex. Simple denunciation of obvious injustices such as income inequality or the dehumanising character of consumerism is as likely to lead to a disengagement from social realities as it is to any kind of transformative movement. This disengagement stems from the fact that it is strongly ingrained within the social consciousness of the working class that they cannot dissociate from the powers that hold them in thrall because those same powers ensure their physical survival. This disengagement may occur because the cause of transformation is deemed to be hopeless and therefore already lost. The result is simply to exacerbate the split between the realm of private religiosity and the public world of work. Therefore, challenging and naming the oppressive idol without addressing the pervasive sense of alienation and apathy that forms the basis of idolatry's power is unlikely to produce positive results. The idol's grip on the working class can only begin to be loosened when the experience of the working class and the discrepancies between the promise and the reality embedded in that experience becomes the basis for critiquing the values espoused by idolatrous ideology. Exposure of these contradictions creates a turning point that demands resolution, a conversion point in which the movement that follows is not a turning away from, but a facing up to the social realities that need to be addressed. Bloomquist accordingly argues that any theology that seeks to transform the reality of the working class must be both not captive to the idolatrous ideology that defines human reality, as well as relatable to the lived experience of those whom it seeks to liberate. In other words, such a theology must combine the tasks of pastoral care and prophetic critique. It must recognise the hopes and fears which the enslaving ideology of corporatist capitalism superficially addresses, as well as attend to the hurts and betrayals which it produces. Additionally, any theological project addressing the realities of work and economy must re-envisage what human flourishing looks like, shifting the emphasis from the individual to the social, thereby politicising both private and public life in order to overcome the privatising split between the life of faith and the world of work. This re-envisaging seeks to transform human beings from the passive subjects of power seemingly 
and seen to be beyond their power to active practitioners of a faith-based praxis in which participatory action leads to the liberation of the human spirit. For Bloomquist, commitment to such a theological project presupposes a quest for human authenticity. In modernity, the idol of consumer capitalism has already articulated its own vision of the authentic person, the autonomous individual who holds the power to determine their own life outcomes. In such a vision, human life is organized without any external authority, human or divine. Our world is one that is shaped by strictly rational human decisions that emphasize functionality and efficiency. The dream, according to this vision, is that human beings become free. The reality is that instead of freedom, we are enslaved to the idol of individual liberty, the idol of the autonomous self. Bloomquist argues that in the 19th century, liberal theology accommodated itself to the ideology of post-enlightenment philosophy by embracing the doctrine of inevitable human progress. However, when the economic reverses and the calamities of industrialized warfare caused this optimism to break down in the opening decades of the 20th century, neo-Orthodox theology argued that the meaning of life and faith needed to be located in revelation beyond history. The identity and purpose of Christian faith was not congruent with the reality of the world. The attempt by Christian theology to accommodate itself to modernity and then make an account of the failure of the philosophical underpinnings of modernity resulted in a split within Christianity concerning the nature and purpose of theology itself. One person who attempted to reconcile this split was the theologian Paul Tillich. Tillich believed that capitalist society had established itself on the principle of individual self-sufficiency. As a consequence, faith was increasingly becoming the captive of the prevailing political and economic currents within society as a whole. In other words, religion had become a tool enabling individuals to succeed in material terms, ones that invoked God's blessing upon such efforts. The social dimensions of faith were limited to providing charity to the less fortunate, who, for whatever reasons, had not shared in God's blessing. The appeal of this form of privatized religiosity was quite simply that it made individuals feel happier about themselves. Over against this sacralizing of the individual, Tillich argued for what he called beliefful realism. This is a position in which the present is analyzed in terms of the eternal, in which meaning is located in the particulars of historical reality. In such a worldview, material reality and the need for physical survival are accepted as givens. There is no need to vest material success or failure with divine approval or sanction. Beyond this, however, beliefful realism seeks the expression of a social and economic life in which the demonic spirit of capitalism is overcome. Demonic in this context meaning the destructive potentials within capitalism 
that holds disempowered social classes in bondage and which generates within those classes an apathy that disenables liberation. For Tillich, the creation of what he called the power of origin, that is, a core centre of being upon which human identity is established, would enable dominated and repressed classes within society to develop a new sense of who they were and where they had come from, reinterpreting both history and the claims made upon them by culture and politics from the standpoint of an entirely new socio-political perspective. The individual would thus be liberated from the relentless drive of modern liberal economics through a paradigm in which social-political-economic matters became theological matters filled with the presence of what Tillich called the unconditional. Tillich's goal in articulating the notion of beliefful realism was to overcome the split between modern consciousness and religious identity, between the culturally grounded optimism of 19th century liberal theology and the otherworldly transcendentalism of 20th century neo-orthodoxy. Rather than being in conflict, reason and revelation were interrelated. Over time, however, Tillich became increasingly pessimistic about the possibility of theory and practice being joined in human reality, and turned away from investigating the condition of the working class toward constructing an apologetics addressed to humanistically educated sceptics. Having traced the arc of Tillich's theological trajectory, Bloomquist then turns to the emergence of liberation theology in the late 20th century. Noting that liberation theology shares some ground with and builds on the kind of theological project in which the likes of Tillich were initially engaged, Bloomquist nonetheless identifies the different course which liberation theology takes. Whereas Tillich was concerned with the cultural despisers of theology, liberation theology focuses on those who are despised by culture, that is to say, those who are ostracized and oppressed by reasons of race, gender, and socio-economic status, and who have often been treated as non-persons by Enlightenment-inspired ideologies. Whereas modern theology has often been concerned with the human person as a subject in history, liberation theology radically redefines the subject as specifically the poor and the oppressed, includes political self-determination within the scope of freedom, and treats history as part of the realm of human redemption. The social nature of the human person and the exclusion of those who are treated as non-persons becomes the theological problem with which liberation theology attempts to grapple. For liberation theologians, knowledge of God comes through the suffering victims of history. God has a preferential option for the poor and the marginalized, and salvation within the scope of history emerges as liberation via a faith-constituted praxis. Faith becomes a mode of human beingness that embraces both knowledge and action. Liberation theology does not seek to understand faith in new ways, 
so much as enable a new faith to emerge from a new praxis that attempts to transform the world and the lived reality of humanity. Theology thus becomes a reflection on practice, supplying it with an interpretive, instructive, and critical framework. Allied to liberation theology, but different from it in some significant respects, is political theology. Bloomquist notes that whereas liberation theology arose particularly as a response to oppression and injustice in Latin America, political theology arose in response to the increasing secularization and privatization of the industrialized West. Whereas liberation theology is concerned with the poor and with transforming the world, political theology is directed at the bourgeois middle class, hoping to inculcate that class with a theological critique of society that will in turn enable solidarity with the poor and the suffering. Political theology notes that in order to survive in modernity, the working class have had to absorb the myths and ethics of capitalist ideology. They have done so, however, not as active agents but as passive dominated objects of that ideology. In this context, working class awareness of their victimization emerges when they connect their own experience with the experience of other oppressed and marginalized communities. However, having absorbed the mythos of modernity, this acts against the movement towards solidarity. The working class is subject to the illusion that they are free and have worked hard for that freedom, even when their experience testifies to the contrary. Political theology therefore seeks to critique the ideology of modernity from the standpoint of the social-political understanding of Christian faith. This is a faith that is enacted in society, a transformative praxis that reveals truth. Political theology does not justify political, social or economic systems, it critiques the justifications for those systems. It reappropriates the social character of biblical symbols, liberating them from their captivity to surrounding cultural norms in order to present an ongoing critique of the established order, disrupting systems that seek to become godlike and idolatrous. Bloomquist notes that political theology arose as a corrective to the privatization of faith that was the consequence of individualist existential theologies. Political theology insists that individuals cannot be understood apart from their social context. The present must be as critically analyzed as history. The deprivatization of faith that is the task of political theology is not intended to make it less personal, rather it is an attempt to overcome the depersonalization that results from radical individualism. Therefore, to understand the human person as intrinsically social and necessarily involved in social relations is to understand that the personal is always political. To be a person is not to be a radically isolated and wholly autonomous individual. It is to be an agent within a social-political reality that both shapes and is shaped by the individual person. 
Thus, all persons are engaged politically with all other persons. Politics is the arena of communal encounter within and through which we reclaim the essence of our humanity. Bloomquist argues that, although originally directed at the middle class, it is nonetheless political theology which forms the best framework for enabling the working class to understand their captivity to the ideology of corporatist individualist capitalism, as well as promote solidarity between the working class and other suffering communities. Political theology both identifies the yearning for freedom, which the false promise of radical capitalism claims to address, as well as the underlying reality of oppression and domination, which for the working class is its lived reality. In doing so, it cuts across the prejudices implicit in class consciousness and the underlying imperative to differentiate oneself from society's losers. By enabling the identification both of one's own victimization as well as the victimization of others, political theology provides the basis for a critical realism that counters both superficial optimism and false pessimism. Historical agency is rediscovered through the experience of victims in history, which in turn breaks down the tendency towards sacralism, that is, the argument that salvation can be obtained through submission to powerful cultural, social and political forces in which God is identified with the victors of any given social historical context. It seeks to inculcate a life praxis that mirrors Jesus' own disruption of the forces of ideological domination and sacralist values. It seeks to make true that which faith already knows, that God identifies with the suffering of the world. God's presence in human history is not to be identified with particular moments or movements in history, but with the countervailing claim throughout history of the a priori dignity of all persons that is the product of their creation in the likeness and image of God. And so we have come to the conclusion of another episode of Ergasia. To leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I'm your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. 
For more information, please go to www.ergacia.podbean.com.